Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. I'm going to entitle this section of Scripture, Godliness in the Last Days. Our context is this. In the last half of chapter 2, Paul had been telling Timothy how to be a worker approved by God, how to tell he told Timothy that he should avoid irreverent babble. Again, he's fighting all the false teachers, including Hymenaeus and Philetus, who said there was no resurrection of the dead. He told Timothy to avoid youthful passions, whatever that might be. He tells Timothy that he must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone as teachers should be when he's teaching the truth. But not, of course, shouldn't be kind to the heretics, but he should be kind to those who might be tempted by the heretics. And so he's still on his theme of dealing with these nasty, Gnostic-type, legalistic-type, Jewish legalistic-type false teachers that he was opposing in Ephesus. So he's going to be talking about godliness in the last days. We start with verse 1. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Now, the first obvious question is, is when does this occur, the last days? Well, if you're a futurist, if you've been soaked in dispensationalism all your life like I have been, of course, that refers to the end of the world. Well, I don't think so. And I'm going to give you good arguments why Timothy, excuse me, Paul was not talking about the last days of the world. He was talking about the last days of the Jewish kingdom, which were about to go down in AD 70. And then all these Jewish Gnostics that were persecuting the Ephesians, they're going to be gone. But before that happens, there's going to be times of, of difficulty. Now, let me give you some opinions as to when these last days occurred, some commentary opinions. Ellison says that this refers to the time of the apostles. That would be the last days of the Jewish age that had no Messiah. So that's the last days waiting for the Messiah. That's the way the Jews thought, the last days before the Messiah came, and the Jews were waiting for the Messiah to come, and he hadn't come yet. So that would be in the 60s A.D., just before Jerusalem fell in A.D. 70. Now, the ESV gives some scriptures which show that the last days was the first century, not the end of the world, as does Ellison, the commentator. Acts 2, 16 through 16. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. That's the famous pouring out of this Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And it is specifically stated there that this was what Joel meant, and that what Joel meant was going to happen in the last days. So Pentecost was in the last days, which is in Paul's day, and not the end of the world. Hebrews 1, 2, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. In these last days he has spoken, past tense, to us by his Son. And when Jesus came, Jesus spoke to the church. That was not at the end of the world. First Peter 1, 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. He was made manifest, past tense, in the last times for the sake of you who are existing at the time that Peter wrote. That's not the end of the world. First Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is at hand. Ooh, the end of all things is at hand. At hand means soon, near. The last days is not the end of the world. As Dee Dee Warren has said when she wrote her book on the Olivet Discourse, she entitled that book, It's Not the End of the World. First John 2.18, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Past tense. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. The last hour, the last days, the last times, it was referring to back then, 
not the end of the world. Adam Clark says it's A.D. 70. He says it often means the end of the pre-Messianic age, the age of the Messiah. In other words, the, the former days are the days of the Jewish kingdom when there is no Messiah. Then when the Messiah comes, that will be the last days because it's the last days follow, follow after the former days. Clark says, quote, sometimes the term is extended in its signification to the destruction of Jerusalem. So the last days means the last days of the Jewish state. He does admit that sometimes the phrase may mean any future time, whether near or distant. And that is true. I, I did a, a Bible study on last days, and I divided the instances of last days or, relevant, or similar phrases into stage, phrases that unambiguously point to 8070 or that can ambiguously point to either 8070 or the end of the world, and there are several. I could find no uses of the phrase that unambiguously pointed to the end of the world, which is interesting. So the preponderance of the evidence is, of the evidence is in favor of the last days referring to the 8070 period, the end of the Jewish age. John Gill, on, on the other hand, disagrees. He says the last days are the end of the apostolic age till the end of the world. Now, he, his view is a little bit different than your typical futurist. The futurists mean the last days are the days right at the end of the world when Jesus comes back. But, but Gill says, no, it's from the first advent all the way to the second advent. All right, so let me summarize our options here on last days. Option number one, just before 8070, this is Adam Clark's view. And this, of course, assumes that the coming of the Messiah and his coming is his coming in judgment on Jerusalem. What will be the sign of the end of this age and of your coming? And all, and when and when the temple gets torn down, the, well, it's 80, what happens at 87? That's the last days. Now, there's a logical argument in favor of that. Paul is giving advice to Timothy. He's not giving advice to Christians at the end of the world, as we'll see as we read on in Timothy. He's trying to tell Timothy 2, verse 5, avoid such men as these. He's telling Timothy in verse 6, for among them are, among these evil people, are, A-R-E, present tense, those who worm their way into households and deceive, present tense, gullible women overwhelmed by sins. He's given Timothy advice on how to deal with Timothy's situation. He's not given Timothy speculative sp speculations about what's going to happen at the end of the world. What good is that going to do Timothy? How's that going to help him in any sense be a, a better leader in the church at Ephesus? So that's our first option, the option that I think is overwhelmingly correct. It's talking about the end of Israel right before the, the Messiah came, which, of course, would be around AD 70. The other option is last days of the world before the second coming. Now, Jameson Fawcett Brown holds to that view. But, as I said, there are no references which unambiguously refer to the end of the world, no last days references. But there are verses which unambiguously refer to Paul's day, the verses which I just read to you. The third option is it's a combination of A and B. In other words, it goes all the way from 8070 or 8030, 80, really, all the way to the end of the world between the first and second advent. That's John Gill's view. Kind of splits the difference there, makes the issue fuzzy. Now, I read you some scriptures that shows that the last days is the end of the Jewish age. Let me read you some more. James 5, 3, your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have stored up treasure in the last days. All right, well, when are, the la when, uh, when are they going to get their treasure in the last days? We drop down to verses 8 and 9 in James 5. You also must be patient, strengthen your hearts, because the Lord's coming is near. 
Brothers and sisters, do not complain about one another so that you will not be judged. Look, the judge stands at the door. Now, standing at the door is close, near. You know what near means. That's very obvious. All of this refers to the storing up of treasure of these evil people in the last days, verse 3. Here's another one in 1 Peter 1, 5. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time, which is a similar phrase to last day. When is this guarding by God's power going on at the time that Peter wrote? When was the salvation that was going to be revealed? At the end of time? No, they were being guarded now for a salvation that was revealed now at the time that Peter wrote. 1 Peter 1.20 He, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed, past tense, was revealed in these last times for you. These last times? That's obviously referring to the time that Peter wrote. So I think, ladies and gentlemen, I've got a pretty good scriptural case that the last days is not the way that Tim LaHaye and Hal Lindsey have taught us with their millions of books from which they made millions of dollars preaching nonsense. Second Timothy 3, 2-5, when people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. And boy, that's not a hard admonition to follow. Avoid people like that. Paul seems to list every nasty thing he can think of to describe people who oppose the gospel. Now, these larger lists of sins are very similar because people sin the same in every age and every generation and every country and every climate, every ethnic group. Everybody's human. They sin basically the same way, and it's very, very ugly. And it's a great way to describe it. Just list all the possible sins you can think of. Paul did the same thing in Romans 1, 28 through 32. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So, same sort of nastiness that we all have to deal with, because there's always going to be people like this that are opposed to the gospel. Now, apparently, Paul is saying that it's going to get a little bit worse before 87, before Jesus comes back and delivers them from all these people. Well, let's go through each one of these adjectives and see if we can get a little bit more out of it than a casual reading would first give us. These people are going to be lovers of self. Now, that's not in a good sense, because there is a good sense which you can love yourself. As John Gill points out, love your neighbors as yourself. That's, I think Jesus said that, right? Love your neighbors as yourself. So you're supposed to love yourselves. But that means you just have a high notion of who you are in Christ, a king's child, adopted son of God, a princess, a prince who can walk into the throne room of God, who's seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, who overcomes by the blood of, Jesus, of their testimony and the blood of the Lamb, and so on. Born again, walk, born again by the Holy Spirit of God, a new creation, a new man, a new person. Well, you know, that's who we are, and we're supposed to be happy about that because that's who God made. That God made us that way when we were born again. So, But Paul's not talking about that. He's talking about loving their old sinful self, their arrogance, their pride. 
that sinful self who's rebelled against God. He said these people are abusive. Now, Ellison says that the word abusive literally means blasphemers, which I speak, someone who speaks against God or against Christ. It could also be people who speak against angels or other humans, in which case it would be a slanderer or a libeler. These people are said to be heartless, the KGV says, without natural affection. Ellison, Gill, and Clark say it means they have no family love. I mean, somebody that doesn't even love their own kids, how heartless can that be? I'll give you two examples. In my home state of South Carolina, back in 1995, I believe it was, very famous case, Susan Smith in Union, South Carolina, puts her two little kids in the back of her car, puts the car on an incline that's headed into the John D. Long Pool Lake, and sends the car into the lake and her kids to their death, and then she lies about it. She's due for parole in 2024. She's going to be walking around the streets of South Carolina if, if the parole officers are lenient. Of course, she's had sex with two guards. In the time she's been in jail, she should have been executed, but she wasn't. And so I don't know whether she'll get out or not, but I'll tell you what, she's a poster girl for not loving your family, killing your own two kids. I just saw a video just as the last two weeks of a woman in Florida somewhere. She has an autistic kid, and she walks the kid to the edge of a canal. She doesn't realize that there are security cameras in this park. She takes the kid, and she pushes the kid into the water, and the kid begins to drown. She turns around and hightails it out of there in full view of the security camera. I'm sure she'll be charged with murder. Hopefully she'll be convicted. Maybe not. I don't know, because in America, we're too loving. We don't have the death penalty like they did in the Bible, Old and New Testaments. But that's a good case of people not having natural affection. You push your own kid into the water. God. These people are said to be unappeasable. Homer Christian Study Bible translates it as. Here's some other translations. Irreconcilable, implacable, intractable, merciless. That gives you the idea. KGV says they're truce breakers. The, Adam Clark says that means they're those who take oaths with no intention to perform. Now, I don't know how truce breakers has anything to do with unappeasable, irreconcilable, implacable, intractable, and merciless. It doesn't really matter. Just bad people. They're without self-control. Gill says that means they're intemperate with regards to food and sex and drink, I might add. These people are said to be people that are not loving good. And Clark says, well, one who doesn't love good is assumed to love evil. There ain't no neutrality. You either love good or you love evil. Now, that doesn't mean everybody's a monster. Of course not. There's natural. We still all have the image of God, and there's natural consciousness still instilled in the unregenerate person. Thank God for it, because if it wasn't for that, we would really be living in a, living in a walking dead dystopia. These people are said to be treacherous, Adam Gill says, to their kings and sovereign. He's British, of course. He would say something like that. But I wonder if this might also refer to being treacherous to former friends. Nothing worse than somebody who betrays you. Remember Demas leaving Paul? He didn't sound too, he was too happy about that. These people are said to be swollen with conceit. One Bible translation, the NJB, which, and I've forgotten what that stands for, unfortunately, which version that is, but it translates it as demented by pride. That's a great translation. These people are demented by pride. And then finally, at the end of it all, Paul says, avoid such men as these. The scripture never says we're to get along with everyone, folks. Now, that doesn't mean you should try to evangelize people like this, because let's face it, everybody is evil to some degree or another, and we, if we're going to evangelize people like this, we, we're going to have to have contact with them. Otherwise, what did Paul say? Otherwise, you would have to go out of the world if you're not to have anything to do with 
such type people, he said, in another context. He tried to evangelize the Jewish mob at the end of the third journey. They were screaming for his head. Didn't do any good, but he he tried. So he's not. What he's saying is is don't get hooked up with people like this. He's not saying don't evangelize them, but he's saying don't get yourself in intimate relationships with people that are like this. They'll do nothing but tear you down. And if you think you can marry a non-Christian who's and you can go convert him, this missionary missionary marriage. I'm especially sensitive about this because in China there's very few Christian men for the Christian sisters and they're constantly, constantly compromising their faith and marrying or trying to marry these non-Christians. It's disgusting. And and their church leadership sucking up to their own Chinese culture. Well, we've got to have a husband full of wife because, you know, the parents will be upset and we've got to honor the parents. And I don't give a flying frip about Chinese culture any more than I give a flying frip about American culture. You don't marry non-Christians because you get yourself involved with people whose hearts are not for the gospel. You are going to be drawn that way. And the same thing can be said with having relationships with people such as Paul's mentions here. You're going to be drawn to the dark side. Let's go to verses 6 and 7. Paul says, For among them, among all these nasty people he's just talked about, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Well, first of all, why are they never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth? These weak women who listen to this stuff, because they listen to false teaching. You listen to false teaching, I don't care how long you listen to them, you're never going to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And if you want to know truth, you've got to follow Jesus and his apostles and his revealed word. If you don't, you're going to be following some philosopher, some pop culture guy or woman. You're going to never arrive at the truth. And these women were listening to these Gnostic legalist type people or Hymenean people who didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead, whatever the false heresy was. They were listening to that. And of course, they weren't able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Now, these false teachers were creeping into households. That sounds like the women are at home, because most of the women back then worked in the home, and then their husbands were out working, doing whatever they were doing, and so these false teachers creep. It sounds like they're not doing it on the up and up. They kind of slide in there. They insinuate themselves into the household. They kind of sneak into the household. Now, once they're in there, they start giving their fancy teaching, and I'm sure the women are sitting there, ooh, this is wonderful, this is nice. And they're not led to a knowledge of the truth, not only because they were being taught nonsense by the false teachers, but also because they were burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. Now, if they hadn't been burdened with those sins and those various passions, whatever those things were, they wouldn't have been seduced by the false teachers. They would have said, listen, you guys are teaching nonsense. Get out of here. Now, he says that these women were weak because they were being suckered by these false teachers. Now, that doesn't mean Paul is not saying that all women are weak, obviously. I mean, the Old Testament is full of examples of women who weren't weak. Jezebel, was she weak? How about Deborah? You have Deborah and Barak fame in, the, in Judges. She obviously wasn't weak. Abigail, of Abigail and David Field, the wife of Nabal the fool, saved, saved her own life and Nabal's life and the whole household because of how wise and how, gut, and how much gut she had in dealing with David, who was pretty ticked off and getting ready to kill everybody in Abigail's household, those women weren't weak. Paul is referring to the women in the Ephesian church who were being begotten. You know this idea that women, yeah, women are the weaker sex in the sense that they have less status, less power, and less finances, at least traditionally. But that doesn't mean they're weak. I mean, I remember reading a book one time. I like to read, I read a bunch of stuff on the history of the war between the states in America. And 
I didn't read this book, but I read a review of it, I think it was, about women in the South whose husbands had gone off to war, and they had to manage a plantation. They were not used to doing this, never had to do it before, and they had to manage... They had to manage the slaves. They had to manage the crops, the selling of the crops, the marketing of the crops. All this stuff was put on them while they were waiting for a letter that said their husband had been shot through the head and killed. And the point of this article or book was these women were your prototypical steel magnolias. So so I don't think Paul is saying that women are weak, but these women here are weak because of their particular sins and passions. Now, what were those sins and passions? What might they might be? Gill says those passions were animal lust and running after fashionable men. Oh, a little sexual component there. I don't know if that's what is going on. It could be because a lot of the, you know, a lot of these false teachers, they love to get into that sooner or later. Not all of them, I'm sure, but some of them might have, and not all of the women would have done that because that's pretty serious. I mean, that's committing adultery right there in your own home. I don't know. I don't think they would be well, maybe they would. I don't know. Human human beings, you don't know. But other speculations are that the, the passions of the women were their pride, their vanity. Some people say they were rich women who loved to say, oh, I've got a big teacher here. I'm going to spread this new teaching around. That could be. Barnes suggests the love of novelty is what was their sin and passion. Here's what he, And here is a quote from the Cambridge Commentary for Schools and Colleges, which backs Barnes up on that. Quote, apparently the meaning is not lust of the flesh, Talk about the the passions. The meaning is not lust of the flesh. It's not sexual, in other words. As in 2 Timothy 4.3, and let me read that. 2 Timothy 4.3 says, For the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires will multiply our teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. That's the passion, is wanting to hear a new teaching. And this is the Cambridge commentary seems to think that that is or states that that is what is going on here. It's not sexual passion, but it's passions for novel teachings. All right, let me read it again, Cambridge from the beginning. Apparently, apparently the meaning is not lust of the flesh, but rather, as in 2 Timothy 4.3, which Wordsworth explains of persons who in their prurient craving for something new to stimulate and gratify their diseased appetite, accumulate to themselves a promiscuous heap of self-chosen teachers. Now, that's some rhetoric there, is it not? So they just like these new teachers. Barnes says that maybe the passions are susceptibility susceptibility to flattery. You know, maybe their husband, maybe they're bored at home. Their husband doesn't give them enough credit and respect and honor for what they're doing. And all of a sudden there comes this man in there who's fluent with his tongue. He wants to teach the women and say, the women say, oh, my husband never bothered to teach me the Bible like he's supposed to. But this guy's teaching me the Bible. And he's teaching me all about angels and laws. And so the fact that they're even being taught is something that makes the women susceptible to flattery. Of course, that at root is pride and vanity. Moving on now to 2 Timothy 3, verses 8 through 9. We'll finish up this section. Paul continues, Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Now, Janus and Jambres are the traditional names of Pharaoh's magicians that are mentioned in Exodus 7, verse 8. These names are not in the Bible. However, they are learned from rabbinical Judaism, as Ellison says. They're not mentioned in the Old Testament. Now, verse 9 says, as these false teachers in Ephesus will not get very far... 
because their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Well, how was the folly of Janus and Jambres publicly exposed as folly to everybody? Well, first of all, Aaron's rod devours theirs in Exodus 7 and 12. And then they could not produce lice like Moses could, like Moses and Aaron could in Exodus 8.18. John Gill mentions those two incidents. And last of all, they ended up with boils all over them. Exodus 9.11, the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils were on the magicians as well as on all the Egyptians. That's something we don't think about too much, the boils getting on the magicians. So... Paul is saying to Timothy, look, these false Gnostics and legalists there in Ephesus, they're going to be standing before the public covered with boils. Avoid these people. Stay away from them. Refute them. Don't have anything to do with them. Again, the whole theme of First and Second Timothy is dealing with heresy, basically. And everything else is sort of subservient to that. Ladies and gentlemen, we are now finished with the first section of, first, of Second Timothy 3. We will start in the next audio at verse 10 and go to the end of the chapter. In verses 10 through 17, we're going to, to see that all Scripture is God-breathed and errant-inspired and all that, which is the perfect antidote to false teaching, something that liberal Protestants will never understand as they continue in their blasphemous desires to tear down the Word of God. So we'll take that up next audio. Hope you stay tuned for that one. Hope you enjoyed this one. <laughs> 